If you're like me, you love and miss that golden era of Christian music. From the Jesus music of the 70s, the monster vocalists of the 80s, and the creativity and risk-taking of the 90s and early 2000s. I'm Andy Chrisman, and for the past four decades, I was privileged to be smack dab in the middle of this crazy and beautiful thing that we call CCM. As a member of the group for him, I got to know so many great people with even greater stories. And I don't want to keep these stories to myself. That's why I created One Degree of Andy, so you can join me as I reminisce with my friends and colleagues. My hope is that as you experience these conversations, you'll go back and listen to that golden era of music and fall in love all over again, just like I have. This is the One Degree of Andy podcast. If you were to name the most successful artist in the history of CCM, you'd probably start with names like Amy, Michael, Sandy, Stephen Curtis, but you'd be wrong because I'm going to suggest that that person is Wayne Kirkpatrick. Now, from the beginning of his career as a CCM songwriter to producing artists such as Billy Sprague and Susan Ashton to writing Eric Clapton's 1997 Grammy-winning song of the year, Change the World, to launching the career of Little Big Town. I mean, come on. And if that's not enough being nominated for a Tony. This guy's incredible. It's such a resume. And this is a very fun conversation about taking every opportunity, even if you have no idea how you're going to get it done. Get ready to meet Wayne Kirkpatrick. Hey, you want to see videos of guests that I have on the pod? Become a premium subscriber and get access to exclusive content, unedited interview videos, and early access to new episodes. Just follow the link in the episode description or go to my website, andychrisman.com for easy access to lots of great extras. Also, if you would, please take some time to leave a review, give us a five-star rating, and share the podcast with your friends. Our podcast is growing every week thanks to our faithful listeners, and I'm always open to suggestions on who to have on as a guest, so hit me up on social media this week. Now, here's my conversation with the amazingly talented Wayne Kirkpatrick. I remember seeing your name, Wayne, for the first time as a writer on the song Wise Up by Amy Grant, which was one of my favorite songs back in the day. And uh, your co-writer was Billy Simon, who would go on to write a bunch of songs for us and for him. Right. And man, then it's like, you know, when you're shopping for a new car and then you see that car everywhere on the road, all of a sudden, (laughs) it's like, I saw your name everywhere after that. Uh, Starting with those great Susan Ashton records and Susan was on was on the pod uh, just a few months ago. And then, man, more writing and producing credits than we have time to mention. I mean, Little Big Town and Garth Brooks. It's just, you know, what a, what a roster. And then, I mean, boom, a Grammy for Song of the Year for Clapton's Change of the World. I remember when that happened, just being so proud that we were kind of connected in Christian music in that way. Right. Now you're a member of the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. I know I'm just kind of going through a list here. So, uh, you know, uh, we'll get to all this. Uh, but uh, a Tony Award nominated writer, I mean, just crazy stuff. All right, it would be faster to talk about probably what you haven't done. So we'll get into all of that. I'm honored to spend time with you today on the One Degree of Andy podcast. Wayne Kirkpatrick, man, thanks for thanks for taking time to do this. This is really cool. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I want to go back to, I mentioned Billy Simon. Um, we'll just touch on this for a minute. But Billy was a huge part of our lives early on, writing Where There Is Faith and a man you'd write about. And I know that 
there was this, I remember this, this, this cassette floating around Nashville way back in the day of you and Billy. Ah, uh, I know it. Was it, did you have like a little, was it a little band or was it just like a little co-writing experiment demo that you're sending out? I remember that. I, I don't, I don't have that. I wish I did, but, um, yeah, for, for, um, a little while, it was actually, we considered doing a, a duo, uh-huh. you know, so it was a, a legit attempt to, um, you know, to put some songs together and, and shop it around and, and try to get a record deal as we all did back then, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, if you're talking about, you're talking about run amok was the name of the, that's run. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, we had, we were writing a lot together back then and, and we just, um, started writing kind of for that project. And it was, it was kind of quirky, uh-huh. kind of outside the box stuff. And, and it was fun. We produced it all ourselves and, and, um, just tried to create this kind of wacky yeah, that was- thing together. And, and oddly enough, you know, it, I mean, it never saw the light of day in terms of like any kind of commercial, uh, no, commercial enough to get anyone interested to sign it as a, us as a duo, but it kind of, Developed this kind of underground mm-hmm. following a little bit. Yeah, definitely made the rounds. I remember that. Yeah, and actually, um, one of the songs, a song that I had written that was on that project called "Clowning Your Rodeo," actually ended up being recorded by Kathy Matea on one of her records. Oh wow! She was a big fan of the <laughs> rhythm stuff, so uh, it's kind of funny the way things get into the hands of other people. You know? Yeah. Well, well, you know, I think your style of writing and, and Billy's too, I know that, that when Where There's Faith came out, uh, it was so different from anything else on Christian radio. Mm. Just the language and the, the pattern of the song. And it, it, in fact, we didn't even want to record it like, because we were just like, it's just so different. I don't know if anybody's, we didn't like it. I mean, it's kind of like, it was so different than what we were doing in truth before we became for him. And and uh, but it was brilliant in the fact that this was where Christian music was going at the time. You were a big part of that. So, how did you get started in this business? Like, uh, how did you how did you get your foot in the door in Nashville as a songwriter and as an artist? Um, hmm, there's kind of two parallel paths to that story, actually. So, I I came to Nashville uh, in the early '80s and went to Belmont. Uh, I had found out about Belmont, it was Belmont College back then. Yeah. And um, uh, this music, this school that had a recording studio and a music business curriculum, I didn't, had no idea anything like that even existed. Uh, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, um, yeah, I, I came up here to Nashville, checked out the school and just kind of fell in love with Nashville and, and the environment. And so going to that school, uh, of course, you're surrounded by, you know, like-minded or, or people that want to be in the music business, you know, either other songwriters, they want to be studio musicians, they want to be, you know, agents and managers. Yeah. yeah. And so I became friends with a couple of guys that, that were on the publishing path. Uh-huh. And they actually, uh, a guy named Chris Smith and a gra- guy named Mason Cooper. And they actually Mason Cooper worked for Eddie Rabbit's company. Oh wow! Uh-huh. Um, and Chris Smith worked for Dick James Music, and he was a tape copy boy back when you made yeah copies of tape. Oh man, that story comes up. There's so many tape copy people that end up on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. 
So they were kind of, you know, as we do college kids, they were kind of forming their own publishing company and Mm -hmm. they kind of quote signed me to their company. And I was, I, you know, they liked my songs and I was able to get into those facilities after hours and record, do guitar, vocal demos or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. thanks to these guys and, um, you know, building up a catalog. And so, uh, Chris, when he moved his way up from Tape Copy Boy to Song Plugger, um, he brought me to the attention of the of the head of the publishing company as one of the writers that he wanted to sign. You know, yeah. Yeah. and so we w- went through what were my first my first experiences as negotiations in the publishing business that did not really pan out well, and through that. Chris ended up leaving that company and going to another company called Merit Music. And he did the same thing. He brought me there to them and they were interested in signing me. And they basically asked me, they said, what would it take for you to sign here? And, um, and at that time I was also developing a relationship with Blanton Harrell who managed Amy Green. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I would like to have my, my Christian music publishing freed up and and they said well we don't do anything in christian music anyway so that's that's fine so i was kind of i think actually back looking back on it they kind of underestimated the um the christian music industry at that Uh time and so but anyway i i signed a publishing deal with merit so what year what year would that have been that was 84 okay yeah that's and the stuff was about to blow up yeah so in the christian music scene yeah yeah and so i signed a um uh, it's essentially a, a pop publishing deal with Merit Music. I wasn't really writing any country music at that time, but um, uh-huh. and um, so a pop deal with Merit Music, and then I was developing this relationship with Blanton Harrell and the, the Christian music publishing side. And um, I don't know how I made that, how that happened, because I'm I am not a business, you know, savvy. <laughs> I just just they just asked me what I wanted, and I said that's yeah. what I would. Like. Because I didn't want to jeopardize any relationships over there. And then it was not long after that, that the song you mentioned, that album, Unguarded, um, on Amy, um, it wasn't long after that, that I got the cuts, Wise Up, and another song, Love of Another Kind. Yeah, right. The the lead song on the record, yeah. Yeah, and those were my first two um, cuts on a big record, you know. And um, so... Blanton Harrell and the publishing reunion music and publishing over there, they had those songs and then, and merit music didn't participate in those at all. So that led to what, like anything does when you get songs recorded on an album, it kind of validates you as a songwriter Uh and it it opens doors, you know, for, so who would you like, who did you meet at Belmont? There's always a story of, you know, of a gang that comes out of a certain, you know, era of going to Belmont or any of these hot spots of, you know, like sitting down, yeah, like sitting down with Wes King, you know, when Wes starts telling his story, it's like this, this, this group of people that all come together and, you know, they all go out and do their own things. But who, yeah. Who did you meet at Belmont that, you know, that you ended up writing with anybody Um, or hanging out with or like from Belmont? I mean, other than those guys that I mentioned, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, which were publishers. I mean, first of all, you have to know I was I was kind of a wallflower. 
at you know i'm yeah. i'm not a work the room kind of guy yeah i feel that and and um so i was pretty shy and uh -huh. um and and really kind of sat in my room and wrote songs a lot you know? <laughs> um, it's but uh, there there were people that i met that we later realized that we went to school at probably at the same time uh -huh. but that i didn't necessarily know at school gordon kennedy i guess would be one of them um who went to belmont around the same time that i did people like uh i did know um lisa bevel oh yeah uh, i lisa bevel sang some demos for me because uh, she went to Belmont at the same time I did. So okay. and I had her, and so she would, she sang a couple of my demos. What a great voice. Yeah, really great voice. And um, so the, the, uh, the Belmont connections I have were kind of after the fact of, uh -huh. you know, I, uh, do you know Mark Bright, producer? Yeah. Mark Bright. Mm -hmm. I was talking to him one day and he said, you know, I was in a class with you at Belmont. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty oblivious to the world around me, you know? Yeah. And uh, so. Well, so you talk about, but you said you had to, there are parallel stories here. What's the other side of, of well, that? Well, that, just that, the, um, the, the Chris Smith, Mason Cooper connection oh, okay. on the publishing side. And then on the, yeah. on the Patton Herald side, I mean, actually the, the more detailed part of that is there was, there was a, class that you had to take at belmont uh, uh intro to music business class and your final exam i guess your final end of the end of the semester project was you had to interview someone a professional in the music business and it was up to you to find them you know and 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 you would you had to record them you know sit down mm -hmm. with with your cassette recorder and, and record yeah. them so i had interviewed um shane keister who was a oh yeah you know who was a uh -huh. big session keyboard player at the time yeah really nice really great and um and then um i mean the full circle of part of that story is i remember interviewing shane keister and then um at the end of the interview i said um well you know maybe one day you'll play on a song of mine you know and he said that'd be great you know and he was just really nice <laughs> yeah. and then you know flash forward to years later he ended up playing on songs of mine on the amy grant records and all you know so yeah yeah, that was that was kind of cool. So was so was the Amy Grant record? Was that the first album you got some serious cuts on? Was that kind yeah. of the launching pad of your career? Yes, I I had had one other. My first cut that I ever had was on a Billy Sprague on Billy Sprague's first record, a song called "What a Way to Go." Yeah, I remember that. And um, that was my first cut, and my next two cuts were on the Amy Grant. Wow. Album. And wow. yeah, I was I was over the moon about that. well yeah you're off and running at that point and that just opens so many doors so many for you yeah. and gets you in so many rooms like so what was like life like after that for you well really kind of shortly after that uh, like what they liked to do at blanton harrell at that time was you know they kind of bring you into the fold you know and, uh -huh. and and kind of nurture and develop you make you part of this family this group of of artists you know and so uh, Mike Blanton at one time came to me and it, like he was putting together a tour, Michael W. Smith's first tour. He, Michael had been playing with Amy uh -huh. in her, on her tour. So Michael, he now had a couple of solo ac records out and they were going to do the first tour. And um, so Blanton came to me and said, um, hey, do you, do you play electric guitar? 
And <laughs> I said, I said, well, you mean like lead solos and things like that? He said, no, just, just rhythm. You know, I was, I'm not a solo guitar. Said, no, just rhythm guitar and things like that. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> now, the answer is always yes. And we'll figure it out answer later. Was yes. I did not. <laughs> yeah. I did not own an electric guitar. I did not play electric guitar. I played acoustic guitar. That was what, I, you know. So, but he said, um, "I want you to come. I want you to come audition for Michael's band." You know, and I'm like, "Okay." And so I had to call a friend who had a guitar amp and say, "Show me how to get a distorted sound out of an electric guitar, and show me how to get a clean sound." And I got a. a electric guitar rich mullins gave me an electric guitar of his oh my gosh wow because we were friends back then and mm. i took that guitar went with my friend who lent me an amp and said show me how to get two sounds out of it you know a clean sound and a distorted sound and then i went and i woodshed and learned the songs we were supposed to learn for the audition and i went to the audition with that i mean i was about as green as you could be in Incredibly into that audition, <laughs> and I, I pretty much lied my way into that because yeah. I wanted to do it so bad. I was like, "Oh, this would be great." And then, um, so I, you know, I got hired for that as as kind of an auxiliary player, and I played, uh-huh. you know, electric. I played because I could play some keyboard. I mean, some secondary stuff, you know, and yeah. and um, and then I sang. So and I vocally, yeah, uh-huh. so um. You know, I was kind of the floater. And then through that is where I started um, developing a writing relationship with Michael. Well, I tell artists all the time that I that I, I consult with, if anybody asks you to do something anywhere in that, say yes. Yes. Just say yes. Figure it out later. You can panic later, but take the open door and go because you never know where it's going to lead. And I mean, that's just no, you don't. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and, you know, Having said that, I mean, that for me was a pretty bold move because yeah. I, I was not, you know, brimming with self-confidence. That's to say, and your wallflower personality. Yes. Yeah. That, but, I, but, you know, I, I so much wanted to be a part of the music uh, community and just mm-hmm. I, I so much wanted music to be the thing that I do, you know, yeah. that I was willing to step outside of my comfort zone uh and the same thing happened with the writing with the first writing with michael because we were in rehearsals and he had this song this piece of music that he kept playing that he he wanted to do for the live tour and he was just singing dummy words you know and and yeah and, i've heard some of his demos yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he kept singing. He's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to come up, you know, come up with something for this. And again, Wallflower standing back in, the, in my mind, I was like, I think I could write a lyric for that in my mind. You know, I was like, I yeah. know what that, you know, and it took me a while, but I, I kind of approached him and said, um, I, I'm trying to remember if I just wrote a lyric and gave it to him or if I said, do you want me to write a lyric to it? You know, or try something. But one way or the other, I got in there and um, I, um, you know, just kind of remembered the melody and I would go home and I would write stuff and I gave it to him. I said, I came up with this for that. And he, um, he, you know, sat in front of him, started singing along with it. And he's like, I like this. And um, so that kind of opened the door. Once we got on the road, 
he started bringing me other song ideas that he had and um you know asking me what what was the first tune you wrote with him Okay, well, that song was the first one that was that we did in rehearsal, and that was a song called "I Know." It was just oh, on the yeah. lot. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. he, it, it, we kind of did it in in on tour for a long time, and then eventually, when he did a live album, he put it on there. It was never on a record proper, mm-hmm. but it was on a lot of things. But um, then, when we were on the bus, he gave me a song. He said, "I got this idea. You see what you th- you know." And it didn't have a chorus. It just was a, you know, like a, a verse idea. And I think a, it might have been just a verse idea. And um, and he was singing the the word Rocket Town. Oh wow! And, and I was like, okay, that's. I said, what is Rocket Town? And and he said, I don't know. I just kind of think you know, place where kids hang out, and um, you know, just kind of a hanging hangout place for kids. And it, okay, um, so. That's kind of all I had, and immediately because I so I grew up in Louisiana, uh, and um, the two places I thought of when he said that were um, Miracle Strip in Panama City uh-huh. and Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Wow! So I don't know. I just kind of was messing around, and I had this little Casio keyboard, little tiny Casio, and I would sit at the front of the bus, and I came up with a chorus, a, a music chorus for it. And then was writing all these words. I kind of saw it as a story song, you know. And so I wrote out, you know, the the lyrics and and the the chorus and everything and played it for him. And then he really liked it. And then he was like, let me give you something else. You know, he started giving me all throughout the tour. He he would give me other song ideas that he had. And um, it kind of developed into a... Now, most of the stuff, um, that was one of the few times where I actually... He didn't have a complete musical idea, so I mm-hmm. contributed. A lot of the a lot of the times he had the music, and he didn't really like write lyrics. So he would he might be spitting out something, you know, in his dummy words. It's like that kind of sounds good. What is that? Or I'd take it and make it turn it into something, you know. And then sometimes he would just be singing something that would not work as a yeah. as a song. So I, yeah, that that's such wild. So. Uh, when did you know, like, let's go back just a little bit, you know, as a young man, as a, you know, knowing that you're good at this, what, at what point did you know as a young man, I think I want to pursue this. And did you have the blessing of your family? I mean, because it, it's, it's, it's kind of rare that, especially back in our day, that parents would go, oh yeah, run to Nashville and face your dreams as a songwriter and an artist. But who did you have back in the day that was encouraging you saying, I think you might be good at this. Yeah. Well, uh, actually my parents were very supportive and they, and they were probably, they probably believed in my ability more than I did. Uh And, um, so I mentioned growing up in, in Baton Rouge, I went to LSU. I entered into LSU as a freshman and I was majoring in landscape architecture. That was my way. Yeah. (laughs) Do you still have a passion for that? You have like uh, a meticulous lawn. Well, not because I do it, but um, <laughs> but I do love I love design. I've mm-hmm. always loved, and and I had taken I went to a magnet school, and um, which which was a great they had a great different programs. It's where I actually um, you had to have a major, declare a major in um high school at this magnet school, and my major was theater. So that's a 
another full circle thing. But I also yeah. took a course called architectural drawing. You know, so I learned drafting in high school, and 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 I really liked design. So, uh-huh. uh, but when I was going to, looking for a major for college, because I didn't know that you could have a career in music as a songwriter, you know, or I knew I wanted to do that, but I needed yeah. something to fall back on was the mindset. You yes. Know? Yes. So I'll major in, and I didn't want to major in architecture because there was too much math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That's funny. I was, I was a math major in college. Where are you? And just kind of did music on the side. And, huh. uh, you know, I, obviously I didn't, I didn't finish my degree. I went on, to uh jump into music full time but man my my mom passed away about about three and a half years ago and even up till a year before she died she's like you think you're going to go back and get that math degree really that's funny because you know you might need something to fall back on i'm like uh you know yeah pretty much set my career path here yeah. mom i don't think that's gonna happen yeah yeah <laughs> yeah parents are always like gotta have something to fall back on yeah you chase this music thing um I could remember playing albums, you know, in, in my house, like, you know, we're painting the kitchen or whatever with my mom and I'm playing an album and my mom would go, you're just as good as he is. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are. You know, so th- yeah, a lot of encouragement from my, my parents. Who were you listening uh, to back then? Who were your influences? Oh, I was listening to um, singer songwriter stuff, you know, James Taylor, Fogelberg. Uh-huh. Um, Eagles, Jackson Brown, you know, wow. yeah. and around that, all that kind of California country kind of movement mm-hmm. stuff. That was, mm-hmm. I can hear that. Cut yeah. It, yeah, that's kind of my wheelhouse where I cut my teeth. But um, but you know, I went into landscape architecture uh, partly because there wasn't as much math, and secondly because <laughs> yeah. I really liked, um, you know, just the freeform design, outside design, and things like that. Uh-huh. So, but there was a there was a class I had to take called uh, it was a communications class, and there was an assignment in that class that was that you had to do something on camera, and it could be whatever you wanted it to be. You just had to present on camera, and because it was a, a, a kind of attached to the landscape architecture curriculum, or you know, it was like a a prerequisite or something. There were other landscape architect majors uh-huh. in there and so a lot of those people what they chose to do was they would show you know instructional video on how to pot a plant you know or th- yeah. you know how to you know how to seed or something whatever mm-hmm. and so and so what i did for my presentation i sat on a stool pulled out my guitar and played a song i wrote oh wow and and when i was done the first thing that the um the professor said he said what are you doing in landscape architecture? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I don't know, you know? And, um, so that was kind of a little indication of, you know, uh-huh. you know, kind of a kick in the pants of what, and, and, um, I was, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I went to my guidance counselor and he said, he said, I'll give you the advice. He said something that I did myself. He said, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I sat out a semester. Hmm. And um, he said, maybe you should do that. And he said, we'd hate to lose you in the landscape department, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He said, you know, maybe sit out a semester and figure out what you want to do. And that's what I did. It was really good advice. And I 
I went and looked at the music department at LSU, uh-huh. which was not my vibe <laughs> at yeah. all. Yeah. It was a different thing, you know. And from there, where I, I had a friend of mine tell me about the school in Nashville, Belmont. Mm-hmm. That's very similar to my story, too, because I, I'd gotten to a point where I'm like, I'm singing a lot. And then I'd go back to my classes and just go, oh, I just, I don't know, it doesn't feel right. But I'm yeah. like, I don't know how, I don't know how to make a living at being a singer. You know, growing up, you know, I'm, I'm in Oklahoma. I don't, right. you know, I don't know what to do. And my dad kind of gave me the same advice when I got an offer to go on the road for a season. He said, he said, just go. You can always come back. Take some yeah. time off, take a year off. And if it doesn't work out, come back, finish your degree. I think that's great advice. And then you start to see the breadcrumbs along the way, don't you? You know, you have enough people in your life to go, you know, you're actually really good at this. And I mean, yeah, you start it also. I think like for me, um, again, uh, bold moves, you know, yeah, strokes, which was not not my thing. And but I I did get to a point to where it's like, you know what, I want to go. Um. I think what was more powerful is like, I don't want to look back 20 years from now and go, what if, what if mm-hmm. I had done, you know, yep. so in me, I thought I want to, I'm going to go to Nashville and see if I can hang with the big boys. And if I can't, at least I, at least I have found the answer. You know? Yeah, that's right. You know? And yep. so other, rather than just sit back and go, what if it's like to have the answer? Well, here's what if I went. And I failed miserably. And so now, <laughs> now, you know, that's right. Yeah. No regrets. So, that's right. And you know, when you're, when you're young and you're young yeah. enough, to do, you know, so that I had, I had enough wherewithal to do that. And, yeah. and like I said, I came up and looked at Belmont and then I loved it. And I actually had, there was a, a friend that came with me who was a guitar player in Baton Rouge and he was thinking of going there too. So I kind of had a safety net uh-huh. and then went up and looked at the school. And then I was like, I'm in. And he was going to be my roommate. But when we came back, as time went on, he kind of backed out of it. So I was left, okay, it's me. It, it's me on my own. And what yeah. am I going to do? And, um, but I was kind of determined at that point. So, I, I mean, I literally, when the semester started, I, I packed up my car. I drove from Baton Rouge to nashville i got off the the wedgewood exit mm-hmm. go to belmont i didn't know who my roommates were going to be i just knew that i had been i was enrolled in the school yeah and i and i got off that exit and i was like oh, what am i doing what am i doing you yeah. know i was pretty nervous and um you know and but but that but that was it i was i was um once i got on campus and got in i didn't really come in and go okay nashville here i am you know i just <laughs> yeah. really like i need i want to soak all this in and i want to i want to learn about the business of music and yeah you know i don't know one of the first classes i took which was that intro to music business class i didn't even know what a public i thought a publishing company was where they printed sheet music and that was it you know i didn't realize that the publisher was your your partner in, yeah. in the world that pitched songs and networked you and connect you know all that kind of uh-huh. stuff I had no idea i was so green yeah and that's where the money is yeah. as obviously you know 
Yeah, it's in the publishing. It's not. Well, it used to be. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Back in the day, it was for back, sure. Back in the yeah. day, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's move on then. I want to because I want to talk about what you've done post um, Michael W. Smith and that era when you started to really make a name for yourself as a producer mm-hmm. and 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 moving on. And I, you know, I mentioned in the intro those Susan Ashton records, yeah, which are just so special to me. Um, you know, I those stand up. I mean, even today, go back and listen to them, and and they all just sound so good. And uh, I just remember thinking, and I would love to work with Wayne Kirkpatrick someday and get that. We never had the chance to, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I just always enjoyed just your approach to how you made music and where you took it. So, how did you get the Susan Ashton gig? Like, where did that was that? Was she the first artist you produced? She was. She was the. That was the first album. That I did. I had again had done. I believe I'd done um, one song for Billy Sprague on something, and but I was working a lot with Brown Bannister, Mm -hmm. and uh, we had done. I believe at that point we had maybe done records together, but so Brown uh, was was talking with Peter York at Sparrow Records about this new artist Susan Ashton. Actually, no, I take that back. I think initially Susan Ashton was going to be produced by um, maybe Greg Nelson, you know, who had done the oh, yeah. Andy Patty stuff. Uh-huh. And I All think the maybe Patty they stuff, had yeah. even seen Susan as a Sandy Patty type artist. And I think that's one. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. And then interesting somewhere along the way um, that that changed. And so they were talking with Brown. And who was extremely busy, and um, I, I think it was Brown who suggested that I produce the record, and and so and I was not a tried and true producer at that point. So what they what Peter York had said um, is um, Peter was open to that idea as long as Brown was the executive producer and the safety uh-huh. something goes wrong in yeah. you and you've got to you know rescue it you know yeah so and give you a great engineer i'm sure too uh yes and um so that's the kind of the way we entered into it and um and then i um you know uh, brown was was uh part of the uh, started playing songs for brown and for peter and you know a few songs that i had started writing and um uh, it it just kind of all kind of fell into place you know Mm -hmm. as we started kind of going down the road and and finding material and um uh and then they kind of let me just they kind of let me do my thing which was i think back on that now i don't know i don't know how except maybe maybe brown was was you know calming them that's like you know he's doing fine or yeah. whatever yeah. so um and then we just start, kind of started um developing uh kind of this the sound kind of started emerging from it just from uh the people that i was bringing into play at the and a lot of times at the suggestion of brown because he had mm-hmm. worked with a lot of people and i was like i need a guitar player that's going to that can kind of do this thing that's uh, you know electric guitar that's kind of a little more artistic or something like that and and it was brown who said you should you should use um gordon kennedy because brown had done i think at that point he had worked with chris McHugh and gordon kennedy 
and Tommy Sims on a white yeah, on white heart, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, those guys are really good session players. It's like, okay. <laughs> and so I brought Gordon in to do a song and we hit it off so well. And it, we're just kind of on the same wavelength and that I just kept bringing him back to do other stuff. And he ended up playing on everything. Yeah. And then we play stuff together. And, um, and it also, from there, we, we developed a, um, a writing relationship, you know. Well, I would say, yeah, very, very successful. So let's go to change the world. I mean, you know, writing that with, with Gordon and Tommy. And, um, I mean, I know that's not, that would obviously something just didn't happen overnight. There was, you know, um, a series of songs and albums that you worked on together, but Mm -hmm. let's, let's go to that because that was, man, I, I, for, for me as a Christian music artist, be able to see you guys stand on stage at the Grammys. Or, you know, the first time I heard that song on the radio and then saw the credits, like, whoa, no way. And those are, those are guys from our world that are, you know, are working with Eric Clapton and, and there's a soundtrack, it's a, you know, it's a soundtrack tune. And was that, was it from Phenomenon? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, And then to see you guys standing on stage at the Grammys, just cleaning up. That was such a, that was such a wild moment for somebody like me just going, these worlds coming together. And I think that's really cool. I, you know, like I, I felt like I had a tiny, tiny part of that, mm. you know, that's part of my family up there Yeah, that that's doing so well. So can we just talk about that song? Tell me about where it came sure. from and how it got pitched and how, you know, how it got into the right hands. Yeah. Well, you know, it kind of, it kind of had a long gestation period, but, um, uh, as you as you said, like me and Gordon and Tommy, we we did we were in the studio a lot at different projects, you know, and and those guys would come in and play on stuff that I was producing, and and um, so there was this song that Tommy, this song idea that Tommy had, and it he it kind of floated around for a while, you know. So you're like you're in the studio and there's downtime, you know, you're sitting around and it's like, you're sharing songs with each other. Play that song idea you had, you know? And, and so Tommy had that, that song idea and he was actually singing change the world, that title. And, um, so nothing was really being done with it. And, um, at one point there was a time where me and Gordon and a little bit, Tommy, but mainly me and Gordon were, were putting together again, kind of like the run amok thing, putting a band together and going to shop around uh-huh. and get a, get a record deal, that kind of thing. So we had done a batch of, um, demos, you know, that kind of thing. Well, it's somewhere in there, uh, in one of those studio moments that on whatever, a, a Kim Hill record or something, whatever session we were doing, we were sitting around and, and said, Hey, what's going on with that song? And, and he said, no, he said, play that. I said, Hey, play that song. I'm going to put it on a cassette. You know, I just ran my cassette player yeah. and put it down. It's like, I'll go work on it. So I took it and would just drive around my car. And, um, and if you know, do you, do you know, Tommy, have you ever, I, I do. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. You know, Tommy's kind of like this really chill kind of, peace and love kind of vibe, you know? So, so the vibe coming off of the, when he was singing to change the world, it's like, he's probably thinking, 
hey, if I can change the world, you know, there'll be peace and harmony and all this kind of whatever. Yeah. But when I was driving around this song, I was like, I don't think that's what it is. It, to me, this song is a love song, you know. And and so to me, the idea was if I could change the world, you would be in love with me, you know. Huh. That was kind of the and and I kind of hearkened back to uh when um for me personally when um I had a a girlfriend that I had that had broken up with me, you know, and going through that kind of grieving period of of that, you know, kind of yeah, you recall things from your past. So yeah, it kind of started writing this idea based on the if I could change the world, you would be in love with me. You know, I would be the sunlight in your universe. You know, wow, that's a great you line. Know? And um, you know, you would you would think my love was, was something good if I could change the world. You know, so there was that kind yeah. of thing. So it was it kind of um and and I had written um a second verse, what I felt like was a second verse, you uh -huh. know, if I could be king, you know, that stuff. And then and there was nothing that we were writing this for, so I, you know, just kind of sat it aside. Well, when we when me and Gordon were doing this band project and with and with somewhat sort of with Tommy, um, Gordon said, Hey, Tommy lived in Indiana at the time. He's like, I'm going up to Indiana. I'm going to do a demo, some more demos for this band thing. I want to do change the world. And I was like, well, it's not finished. And he said, well, give me what you've got and I'll finish it on the way up to. Indiana. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. So then Gordon took it and came up with a, you know, a first verse. And I think, and it actually put a bridge on it that didn't yeah. happen. But um, and went up to meet Tommy and they did a demo on it. And, um, and then that's kind of, it kind of like, sat. there it is. Yeah. There it is. You know? Yeah. And, um, and then it, then it just kind of knocked around town for a while. And, uh, at one point, Tony Brown, who was producing Winona. Well, hang on a second. I want to back up just a second for people who don't okay. understand about a song knocking around town. Yes. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of a foreign idea to, to people who don't know the industry. When you say it knocked around town, it meant your publisher had it. Or, oh, sure. Yeah. And then they pitch it like it goes into. So if somebody's, somebody's making a record and there's a, before they go into the studio, there's like this, this memo that goes out or this, a letter goes out or whatever it was back in the nineties, something right. goes out to all the, all the labels or the, the, the publishing companies. Yeah. Kim Hill's making a new record. Right. So looking for and, this. Yeah. Right. Right. And so you get these batch of songs that then the AR director and the artist and the producers all listen to and start to choose. So that's what, if, if I'm correct. Yes. And that's, you know, yeah. It, it goes into the. Um, so the it went to a lot of people's ears and through a lot of people's hands. Yeah. I'm assuming so that, yeah, yeah. That it was kind of pitched around. And, and I mean, with your it, names on it, it had to because of your success. Well, yeah, but it was, I mean, our success, whatever you would call that, was, was really more in Christian music. And this was true. Not a, yeah, you know, true. So, you know, there was, there can be a little bit of a, you know, what are these guys doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so, um, but yeah, it, it, it somehow got into the hands of Tony Brown, who was looking for songs for her, for the next Winona record that he was producing. Uh -huh. And he 
wanted to record it on her. And there was a woman named Kathy Nelson was in his office and she was a music supervisor for Touchstone Pictures. And he said, um, let me show you this song I'm going to record on Winona. And he played that song for her. And so then flash forward to, I don't know how much longer. It took a while for Tony Brown to record that song because Winona, she got pregnant. So she was having a baby, you know, so it was a long uh-huh. time to get the record done. He eventually did record it on her and she's the first one that recorded that song. It's on her album. Oh, wow. I think I yeah. did know that. Yeah. Yeah. And but Kathy Nelson uh, remembered that song and that demo when she was looking for a a song, a vehicle for Eric Clapton and Babyface to do together. Wow, um, Babyface producing, and so that is kind of how it got into that world. Um, thanks to Tony Brown playing yeah. that, for, you know, and then um, and of course. So for us, me and Gordon and Tommy, we didn't really have anything to do with all of that. That was just kind of happening. You know, uh, Gordon would call me every once in a while and go, hey, I, I think somebody's going to record that song. I think I've heard that, um, you know, it's going to be in a Tom Hanks movie or or Paul McCartney's going to record. It. I was like, Shit, right. You know? <laughs> wow. And then um, <laughs> and then he called back and said, OK, I heard something different. He said, um. Eric Clapton's going to record it and Babyface is going to produce it. And I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) I'll believe that when I see it, you know, and it was so, and then next thing I know it, that had happened. And, um, uh, we had a copy of it. Gordon came to my house my studio was in my house at the time. And he said, I've got a copy of it that we can listen to. And so we, we played it and I listened to it. And I thought, uh, my first thought was, that sounds really great. I can't imagine that would work on the radio. <laughs> That's what I wow. thought. And wow. um, just, you know, because at the time, I don't, you know, I don't know that there was anything else kind of like that going on. You know, it, it was uh-huh. it was kind of acoustic driven and, and not, you know, yeah. and I was like, I'm not going to play that on the radio, you know. So, and then, boy, was I wrong and glad I was not running a radio state, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it just kind of took on a life of its own. And we really, we were really just spectators in all of that at that point mm-hmm. after having written it, you know? Yeah. Well, so, then I'm sure the, the, the notoriety and the offers after that were, it was a different world. Correct. Yeah. I mean, actually, um, I know for me personally, I was, um, I was in negotiations with a uh, with Warner Chapel LA uh, publishing company. Um, I was had been talking. Uh, I m- might have even been before or around that time, or even before. I, so I, I had been um, in negotiations with them, and I actually remember signing my contract with them. I hope I'm remembering this right. Yeah. Uh, signing uh, out in LA and signing my contract with them the day that the nominee me nominations came out. And you're like, so glad I didn't sign that deal before yeah. the nominations <laughs> came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but what was interesting is they did not own that song because that was, Oh, that was with, um, I was a publishing company before I negotiated with them. So, uh-huh. but, um, but they were, 
they use that you know, obviously for to um connect me with other writers and other yeah yeah it just it the, in the same way that the amy grant cut happened for me it was it was that you know you mm -hmm. you just have a a um resume you know yeah yeah, quite a resume. So if, well, then, so if somebody says, will you write, if, if a publisher calls and go, will you write with my writer, Wayne, and and um, it, to to be just not some other writer, you know, if you have something like, well, he wrote this and this and this, it's like, and then so a big time writer will go, oh yeah, I'll write with them, you know. Yeah, right. That's how, that's how they use that leverage. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Well, then and, let's talk about your, your, your uh, foray into country music as a producer. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, we got to talk about a little big town just for a minute and then, you know, what you're able to do with Garth and, um, you know, there, there was a, there was definitely a shift into that era. So was that after change the world? Was that after kind of all that? Was it kind of around the same time? Yeah, it, it was, it was after that. And, um, I had not really, um, for being in Nashville as long as I was, I had not really tried to do much in country music. You know, I was writing pop kind of stuff and country mm -hmm. music wherever, especially when I first came here in the eighties, you know, it was, it was, it was just not the kind of stuff I was doing. So I, well, I'd also heard through the, you know, uh, I'd, I'd heard through the, you know, the people that I was around that the country music writing circle was kind of a closed loop. Was that, Kind of it was like it was kind of hard to get in to those circles. Probably so. I, I think every circle was kind of closed in. I I can remember going out to L.A. in those, um, it, you know, in the early nineties or the, you know, and there was a little bit of a of a prejudice from people out in L.A. You know, uh, like oh, those are Nashville. You know, those are yeah. country or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. and it. It's it's completely different now, but um, back then it's almost like you weren't. There was a you could feel a sense of like oh, you're they're surprised if something came out of Nashville that was something other than a country song, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which is which is kind of weird because I mean, really, some of the best writers in the world live in Nashville, and I mean, mm -hmm. country writing is not as easy as it looks you know right to write right. a good country song it's not it, it's deceptively simple you know uh -huh. um but it yeah, I agree. so yeah so um but anyway th so but in nashville i'm sure there i'm sure there were a lot there was you know if, if there's any kind of um circles i would say it was more like old guard new new guard kind mm. of circles like yeah people coming in with these kind of progressive music idea you know mm -hmm. that's not country kind of yeah you know, I'm more well, so I, I, yeah i remember playing golf with jay demarcus when he was still with east to west and he was out on tour with us and he had told me that that east to west was going to break up and he was going to go write some country songs with his with his mm -hmm. cousin and try to make it as a country artist i remember thinking back nobody does that nobody Nobody goes from Christian music into the country world successfully. So, you know, good luck with that. Right. Uh, but, you know, obviously that's why I'm not, you know, I can't predict those things. Uh, <laughs> but, well, you know, I had done, I, I did a country record 
on Kim Hill. Um, that uh, uh, I think Blanton Harrell, because she was at Blanton Harrell Reunion uh-huh. Records, and um, they did a joint venture with with a country label or a country A and R person, something like that. And so they had an end to that, you know. So and I I did this um, kind of straight up, you know, use all the right session players and do all that kind of stuff, um, and and was writing for it, and it was, you know, it was. It was okay. I mean, it, it didn't make any kind of splash in country music. And some of it is, I think, is some of that, oh, here's somebody coming from the Christian music world, and now they're going to do this country music. And it, and it takes a little while for, um, for people to get used to that. And it usually takes something like some sort of breakthrough uh-huh. song that, that makes people sit up. And right. if, it, if, if she had had a hit song on country radio, then you, you can you can kind of move out of that, that preconceived idea of what someone is, you know, but, um, I, even when, um, when I started working with little big town, cause I started off with them, we were, we were just writing to get, um, they were doing an album, their first album and they were writing with people and, and I got called to, to write with them. And part of that is because Karen Fairchild, mm-hmm. um, who had done some stuff in Christian music. Right. As yeah. Well. I was, I knew Karen very well. In fact, uh, her first husband, Mark Childers uh-huh. was, yeah, was Mark. our bass player, was our bass player right. for like That's right. seven or eight years. Yeah. yeah good friend of and ours. She did a duo thing with, um, with yeah. Lee, uh-huh. Lee Capolino. Yeah. Yeah. From for who went on to be in point of grace. But so, uh-huh. so Karen had a foot in the Christian music world. And I think Karen was actually in, was she in truth? Yeah, she's in truth. That's where she yeah. got her start. Yeah. So, so, um, and Kimberly might have been too. Uh, I can't remember, but I know Karen was. Yeah. Um, and um, so, anyway, it, it, Karen is the one that got, I think, uh, uh, I was writing for Warner Chapel, who, who requested us write together. So that's how we kind of got connected. And um, so we, I wrote with all four of them together and um and we just hit it off you know we really we liked all the same kind of music and you know so um so we had written and one song that we wrote together was on their first record when they were on sony and um they were kind of poised to be the next big thing mm-hmm. and and that record just didn't um do what they thought it was going to do and it was a it was a good record um but they just the single didn't didn't connect and you know whatever it whatever the song was and um so yeah they were kind of like back to the drawing board and yeah I continued to write with them and did they want you to produce the next record well yeah when we got to the second to the next record they had gone in they were looking for songs for their next mm-hmm. record they um and Karen had called me and asked for a song I gave her a couple of songs and. They went in and recorded them and um uh they did like four songs and and um that was the record label was not liking it mm-hmm. and so um karen when we were writing they were like would you be interested in maybe coming in and producing our vocals and i said yeah i would love to but your producer's not gonna step yeah. aside <laughs> yeah, yeah it'd be know, awkward yeah 
And so, but when they got to the point to where they had done the four songs that, and they weren't connecting with the label, it then kind of became, if they said, if we can find the right song, it's kind of anybody's game. Like a, a someone, a producer comes with the right song and you do, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and they had, I remember them saying that they presented the, the notion of me producing them and the reaction, mm-hmm. was, well, isn't he a pop guy or Christian music or pop, you know? Yeah, And so, you know, I had said, I said, you know, they're not going, the record label is not going to say, hey, here's some money. You kids go have fun, make a record, you know, that we're going to have to show them what we would do, you know? And so that's where we kind of started. It's like, I, um, I, I had a song, um, we would we look through songs of mine. I thought we found mm-hmm. a song that they liked. I went in, I, I got my friends in that were just happened to be A-list session players, you know, to come in and, and play a track, you know, help me record a track. And, um, and uh, we recorded that song. They took it to the label and the label said, okay, I, um, I don't think this is the first single, but I get, I get what you're trying to do production wise. So it, that was the first step. It's like, yeah, okay. And it and it was very um, it was very organic and swampy and all this kind of stuff, you know. And um, so it's like we got to find a song that would that we could lead off as a as a first single. And um, and Kimberly said when we were in a writing session, she said, "I like that song, that guitar thing that you were playing the other day that you showed us." And um, which I had shown them this guitar riff that I had had for sitting around for probably. 10 years or something. Oh my know? gosh. And, yeah. um, said, I like that. And I said, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That could be something. So we started exploring that and that, uh, the short story is that was boondocks. Boondocks. So, about yeah. I knew you were going there. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, um, we wrote that song and, um, and again, I brought in guys, we just cut a track on our own, you know, and, and brought it into the label. And the label, they said, this is it. This is the first single and we're going to release it. And they set a date, uh, you know, three months out because you got to have time to work the release of a single. They had a date set. And then uh, in the middle of that kind of waiting for that to happen, the uh, all those the there was a regime change with the label and all those people got fired. Oh, and the new several times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The new regime came in, they opened mm-hmm. the books, they looked at Little Big Town, okay, Little Big Town, this group, they're they're a million dollars in debt, because they had done a, a, a record that did, yeah. That, so we need to let them go. Wow. So <laughs> they came out, they came out here one day, and it's like the label had dropped us. And he said, so what do you, you want to do? And I said, let's just keep going. You know, I, you know, I think we're on yeah. to something. We yeah. like you know. So let's, let's just keep going. So that's what we did, and um, we we did that for uh, the next two and a half years. Wow! <laughs> Before that, it was two and a half years from then to the time that Boondocks actually came out. Wow! They, yeah, wow. and then they were everywhere. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing. Yeah. It's still. I mean. Still, yeah, little big town is literally everywhere. I just laugh yeah. every time I, I see him pop up somewhere. 
and kind of knowing some of those stories. Yeah. And, you know, they deserve it. They, I mean, they are hard workers. And, and I mean, when I started working with them, they had already been together, I want to say seven years, mm. you know, and I mean, they were flat broke and, you know, they would, they would, um, rent a van for the weekend just so they could go out and play live. You know, they'd scrape wow. their together to rent a van to go out mm. and and play. And, Incredible. Um, They'd make yeah. a great documentary at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they were, um, they were persistent. And, you know, that was a time where uh, all of us, like me and them collectively, we all kind of had, each had something to prove. Uh-huh. You know, they were trying to prove that they were a legitimate uh, group that deserved to be in that marketplace. And I was trying to prove that I could produce a country record, you know, <laughs> and, and could write country. So, you know, and so yeah. we were, we were kind of a bunch of misfits because when we did the first uh, few songs after they had been dropped from their label, we did like a four song EP and their management would take it around and pitch it. And all the major labels turned them down. They said, mm-hmm. we don't know. We don't know what to do with this. You know, they were not, there was not a designated lead singer. Um, and it was not, um, it, it was not kind of straight down the pike of, of mm-hmm. what music was that was happening at the time, you know, so, um, nobody really knew it didn't really fit, um, a mold. Yeah. At the time. So, well, well, I, you know, I, I've kept you over an hour so far and we still haven't gotten to, the last thing I want to talk about, we haven't gotten to Garth and, yeah, you know, just so much of the stuff you've been a part of in country music, but we have to talk about where you are now. We got to talk about, you know, so all through this time, all through your story, you've got a brother that is, is have his own career, very successful career in movies. Right. And let's talk about that for a second and how that led to you guys now starting to write Broadway shows together. Yeah. Well, um, as I mentioned in high school, I was theater major and uh, my brother went to the same high school. Uh, he's a few years younger and he, same thing. He was a theater major. And so um, then he, when we left high school, obviously I pursued the, the music career in the Nashville. He was in Nashville briefly. And then he decided he, at first he thought he wanted to be an actor, you know, so mm-hmm. he was that. And then um, he did that for a little bit and then decided that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a screenwriter and he went out to California and went to USC in film school and, and, you know, studied to be a screenwriter. And so he had his career um, writing screenplays. He, he wrote for Disney for a little bit. And then he, uh, you know, so he wrote James and the giant peach and, and then he wrote um, Chicken Run and, you know, yeah, great. So he was having a success in the, in the screenwriting world and I was doing my thing in music. And we always talked about um, wanting to write a musical, you know, and we actually quite a while ago, like kind of in the early, in our whatever, late 20s or something we we did attempt to write one you know 
which we, we think back on it and think, I, I feel like we got together for a weekend and wrote a musical, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. very good. <laughs> um, and um, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. And we, I mean, we still don't really, but I mean, we really didn't know them. But um, uh, so we would always talk about wanting to write musicals and we would throw around ideas. And, and we had a few ideas that we would kind of bounce back and forth. And this, this idea that we had that we kept just referring to it as that Shakespeare musical, you know, we was like, feel like this could be something, you know? And so whenever we were together, cause I'd go out to LA to work, you know, or um, we'd get together for holidays and all that. And, you know, we'd go, you know, I have had another idea on that Shakespeare musical thing. What if, you know, and we'd throw out, what if blah, blah, blah. And they go, Oh yeah, that would be funny. We should write that one day. You know, those were the kind of conversations we had for about 15 years. Wow. And at one point we were like, you know, if we're going to do this, we, if we're, we need to get serious about it, you know, we need to carve out time to work on it. And so we started doing that. And, and then our big question was, how do you pitch a musical? What do we have to yeah, do? I, I'm, so I'm interested in that. You write a yeah. song, you write a yeah. song, demo it, and then you pitch it. It's like, but a musical is like, do we, do you write a whole musical and demo it or what? And so we were in the fortunate situation where we knew a Broadway producer. So a guy named Kevin McCullum, who, when my brother was pursuing the acting thing, he worked at Disney World in, in Florida. Uh-huh. And Kevin McCullum was an entertainer that worked at Disney World, too, in like a Broadway review show. They became friends back then. When my brother, when Carrie, he went to film school. Kevin went to film school at USC. So they, they became friends out there. I got to know Kevin through my brother, so I'd known him for years. Kevin eventually left California and got into theater and got into production, and his first big musical that he produced was rent and so we and we were in a car with kevin after seeing the show and and my brother you know me and wayne are talking about writing a musical (laughs) and so this was 96 james and the giant peach was out and and change the world was out and kevin said well i'd love to see what you guys come up with so we had this open door and like i said that was 96 15 years later in 2010 Cause we were, we, we were like, what do you have to do to pitch a musical? And Carrie goes, let's call Kevin and ask him. Yeah. So like, what do you need? And you, you know, cause Kevin by this point now had produced, um, Avenue Q. Wow. Drowsy chaperone and in the Heights and all of these, you know, he said, well, you know, um, Avenue Q was three songs and an idea. And, um, in the Heights was a concept, you know, and we were like, okay, well, we've got that. Can we get together and pitch you what we have? And so that's kind of what we did. And we all met in LA, went out to dinner. We told Kevin our idea and then went back to my brother's place. I sat down at the piano. He said, here's some songs. We just had snippets of ideas, you know, not Mm -hmm. fleshed out, but had about five song ideas enough to show that here's what the music tone would be. Here's what the style would be, you know? And then a, a couple of weeks later, Kevin called and said, I think you guys are, I think you have something. We should talk about moving forward. Oh man. I mean, like that's freak out time, right? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. May 
No, because because he had he had called Carrie and told him that, and Carrie called me and said, "Yeah, Kevin thinks we have something and wants to talk about moving forward." And I was like, "Oh no!" Oh yeah, now, now the pressure's write, on. Now we have to write this. Yeah, right. Now the pressure's <laughs> you know, on. It's all fine and dandy when you just talk <laughs> about one day you're going to write a musical. Now they actually do it. You know. Yeah. So that was something yeah. rotten. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, something rotten. And that came out when? Uh, uh 2015. Okay, and then how long did that run on Broadway? It ran, no, well, it's not on Broadway. It ran on Broadway for just under two years. Mm-hmm. And then we did a, a national tour, which was about a year and a half, and then did a second tour that was about a, a year and a half. And then they released the licensing. That's kind of the way these the process worked. So now it it is performed around the world and wow. and around the country high schools i've seen several productions of it here in nashville wow that's wild it is mind-blowing um it it's um it's pretty um sometimes i just i still can't believe that we we did that you know it's like mm-hmm. how did this happen you know it's like that it's like in um that thing you do when the <laughs> that, the guys are standing on stage yeah and like, how did we get here? <laughs> because I led yeah. you here. I am Spartacus. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell you how many times that show comes yeah. up uh, when we do these interviews. Everybody has a connection to that in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah so um, Mrs. Doubtfire is now your your show. How can we see that? Yeah. Is that is that playing here in the States right now? That is, it is currently in London. Playing on the West End uh-huh. in London. We opened that in May. I mean, it. we opened it in New York. Let's see. It opened in March 2020. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. We did three shows. Man. And then COVID shut down the entire Broadway world. Oh, that was such a terrible time. So we went through that. Stopped and started three times on oh Broadway. man uh, so uh, just to interject a little story here my wife and i's 30th anniversary was march of 2020 we had this big oh, wow. trip planned to go to new york city and we had tickets to a bunch of shows um we had tickets to moulin rouge and then we had tickets to um uh-huh. sing street which was in its final preview performances oh, yeah. and uh man that's just one of my favorite movies of all time right yeah and uh yeah we 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 yeah, had um, great great movie. Uh, we had tickets to uh, to kill a mockingbird. Oh yeah, as well. I'd heard a lot of great things about that. A bunch of my friends had seen it, mm-hmm. and gosh, it just it just broke my heart. Not that we couldn't go. I mean, that was that was bad enough, but just so many shows just completely shut down. And you know, we were we were kind of in a in in yeah you know in a new territory here of like. You know, are any of these shows going to come back? I mean, what's going to happen to the Broadway world after all of this? And oh, it was, yeah. I mean, it had to be. It had to be torture. Yeah, and we were actually that night. We were supposed to go to the premiere of um, Six, the musical Six, uh-huh. which was a production that Kevin was involved because Kevin's the producer on Doubtfire as well. So. Um, we were set to go to the opening night of six. So for them, you know, they were getting ready to, you know, they'd been in previews for several weeks. Uh-huh. Now it was their opening night and they got, that got yanked out from them. We felt so, I mean, we got yanked out 
under us too, but they, I mean, they were like right up at the, you know, mm. at the finish line there, you know, yeah. for opening. And um, now, fortunately, you know, some shows uh, got to come back. Six came back and is is doing great. So they, um, Sing Street did not come back. I mean, and maybe it will eventually, but shows that had um that just had smaller budgets like that just could not sustain. Uh, yeah. The oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And so we feel fortunate that um, at, uh, the hits that D- Doubtfire took through all of that, because once we, we did finally get to open, and once we finally opened, then the Omicron virus came in and shut us mm. down again, you know, just because we had, <laughs> I think at one time we had 22 cast members out, casting crew out with COVID. Oh, my and goodness. You, you just had to wow. shut down. So it was, yeah. it, was, it was rough. So the fact that we got a second chance to take it to England and mm-hmm. we um opened it in out of town in Manchester, England, and it ran and did really well there and then moved into the West End and it's it's doing really well over there. And then we we've got a US tour going on right now. It was just in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, actually. Oh nice. So a US tour that's going in through uh till December of next year. Um so it's it's the it became the little the little show that could you know yeah yeah but we're just we're just grateful that it found its legs you know and it's going yeah yeah so uh so what's next for you is do you feel like that that broadway is like this thing you'll do for the rest of your career is this you know is this something you really enjoy doing obviously it is it is yeah yeah for as long as they'll have me yeah <laughs> i think so i i i do I do really love it, and it is a it is a bit of a full circle. As I said, I kind of my high school days of, of being theater, and you know when I started doing it again, it's like I know these people, you know, yeah, my friend, yeah, and I really and and it really it sounds cliche, but I, but theater really is magical, you know, and um, and I I love the storytelling of it, you know, the show so. I am currently me and my brother are are getting into developing another one. We're on the front of it, and I'm also working on one uh, independently uh, around centered around the Bluebird Cafe. Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm developing with a with a, a producer um, who approached me about doing something with that. So I'm I'm doing that. That's cool. Yeah, we got to sing there not long yeah. ago. Yeah, and um. So yeah, I'm I'm pursuing it and trying to uh figure out how to get better at it and yeah. Yeah, we're always learning, aren't we? And uh you know, it's interesting. I I've I've seen a thread through our conversation here of just just do what's in front of you. You know, just mm-hmm. go to Nashville and 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 write and be around people who do what you want to do. Uh Play electric guitar for her, yeah. you know, for uh, Michael W. Smith. Uh, go produce a record for Susan Ashton. Yeah. And these things, they don't just happen. I mean, but they, they're opportunities that you're given that you didn't think, well, I didn't know I was going to do that. And and now, you know, writing music for Broadway shows. I mean, I, I think it's such a great, uh, yeah, I think it's such a great idea for those of us who want to you know, do something great. Just keep working. I think so. And I, I think there's, there's always when, when people ask me, um, 
and by, you know, kids or, or whatever, you know, there's always go. It's like, first of all, how bad do you want it? Yeah. You know, and within the limits of the law, right. You know, <laughs> you want to do, you know, of course. Get it. Yeah. And, um, being a finisher, I think it's important to be a finisher. Yeah, that's good. You know, I like that. because, um, we get into to doing things that we're excited about and, it's it's all shiny and new, these new ideas and everything. But the middle is really hard, you know. And you get to the middle, and the chances are you've got another shiny new thing over here that would be more attractive at this point because the middle is hard. But um, if if you get in the habit of finishing things more than not, then you do yourself a service by just a sense of completion of something, even if it doesn't see the light of day or something. The fact that you've finished it, I think that's really, I think that's something that I try to do a lot. I'm going to finish this. I don't know if it's any good, you know, but I'm jazzed about it and I'm going to finish it and I'm going to get through the middle and get to the other side of it, you know. And um, I think that has made me feel a sense of accomplishment beyond the world of whether it's successful or not, you know, successful within myself to go look back and go, I finished that, you know. It's really horrible, but I finished it. You know? <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's what I just keep trying to do is finish things. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me every Monday for new stories from the Christian music industry and beyond. And if you want more content like this, along with a lot of great music, join me for Worship with Andy Christman, airing on 500 stations around the world every weekend. And when you get a sec, run over to my website, andychristman.net. For information about my professional vocal coaching and an incredible new resource for worship pastors called The Worship Table. See you next time on the One Degree of Andy podcast.